Welcome back to podcast number 19 in this series of podcasts brought to you by Good Thinking, London's digital mental well-being service. Good Thinking provides instant online support for mental well-being in London. In this podcast, Good Thinking's clinical director, Dr. Richard Graham, is in discussion with Nicola Millard. Nicola is the principal innovation partner at BT. Nicola and Richard are going to discuss the future of work. During the pandemic, we may have thought that working from home was temporary, but for some, it is going to become a permanent arrangement. Nicola shares fantastic insights from almost 30 years with British Telecom on how to do it effectively. And it turns out it's a bit like drinking at a wedding. The Good Thinking podcasts are available on all the main podcast channels. We would really appreciate it if you would share, rate and review our podcasts so we can respond to what you want, as we want as many people as possible to benefit from these really interesting discussions. Over to you, Richard and Nicola. Thank you, Tracy, And thank you, Nicola, for giving us your time today. It's a pleasure. Great to be here. Now, I know that you've been working on the challenges and opportunities for people working from home for some time now and have learned a great deal. Yes. I also noted today that Twitter announced that perhaps for the first time, people would be allowed to work from home forever. So compared with the sort of sense many of us have had that this is a temporary change to how we're working, it may become the new normal. So from all the years you've spent with British Telecom learning about what works, what helps with homeworking, where would you start? Where's the first place you'd start in helping people make the most of it? Well, I ought to fill in a little bit of background. So I've worked for BT for rather too many years than I would care to admit. But one of my first jobs in BT, actually back in 1992, was our first homeworking experiment, which we lovingly called the Inverness experiment because, oddly enough, it was in Inverness. So we had uh, 11 volunteers who said that they were quite happy to work from home for a year. They were directory inquiries operators, so were effectively contact centre advisors. And to be honest, I mean, BT is a, a technology company, so mostly it was a technical trial to actually prove that the technology worked. I'm a psychologist, so I was part of a very big team, actually, that was also doing a lot of the psychological monitoring because no one had done this for a year before. And we weren't entirely sure whether people's mental health was going to stand up. Now, I have to say from a mental health perspective, actually, it wasn't very problematic after. I mean, once people had bedded down into a routine, which we'll talk about in a minute, actually, they benefited greatly from working from home. And the technology worked and we did over engineer it because uh, we gave them things like video phones, which in those days, they were approximately the size of a fridge. (laughs) And the quality wasn't brilliant either. But I think the main problem was we didn't have broadband. So we literally had to bulldoze people's front gardens in order to get a big enough pipe into their house to support all of the stuff we'd put in. And as a result, it cost us £11,000 a seat to put all the equipment in. So we didn't do it back in 92, but I think I was working on the program in BT that was looking at completely revolutionising the way that we worked. And actually, by the year 2000, a fair proportion of our employees did work from home, some of whom worked permanently from home and others did not. And I think uh, like a lot of tech companies who, who were very early on in doing this, I think we pulled back a bit because I think we've all found out that permanent homeworking is actually quite difficult 
So I must confess, I woke up probably a week into the lockdown. And, and although I've studied homeworking and I, I've studied all sorts of things around leadership in homeworking and culture and homeworking, I, I've never really been a homeworker. Ironically, I prefer my coffee. I like a, a nice cup of coffee in front of me and probably a, a bit of company that I don't necessarily know. So I woke up and thought, well, I'm actually rubbish at homeworking. I need to find out how to do this better. And then it occurred to me that, you know, some people in BT have been doing this for over 20 years and are very good at doing it. So the first thought that I, I came to was, well, let's just ask them. Let's ask these people that have been doing it for a very long time how they do it. And over a couple of weeks, I gathered lots and lots of comments and experience and advice from over 100 veteran BT homeworkers around how they do it. And obviously, there were some individual stories and quirks. But what we did was to really pull together some commonalities and some guidelines that firstly helped me enormously, but hopefully help other people as well. Yeah, that's a really good point because I found myself when I was hearing about these insights, which are fantastically helpful, how we all need to revisit them actually because you can easily slide into unhelpful routines, habits. So yeah, it's an incredibly valuable document that um, you've been able to produce. Good. So where would you start then? What would be one of the first principles of making a success of working from home? Well, I think that the first thing that came out very strongly was around the workspace itself. Now, obviously, ideally, it would be lovely to have a room that you could use exclusively for work and, and a door you can close just in case the rest of the family want to encroach in your workplace, because this isn't homeworking as normal. I think that that's one thing that came out quite strongly that you don't normally homework with your entire family and your children at home. But I mean, not all of us live in mansions. And I think that the underlying story was around trying to create a workspace that works for you. That's maybe a compromise. But people were saying, if you don't have a room, just find a sunny spot, you know, um, just find somewhere that's bright and energizing that actually does kind of encourage you to focus on work. Um, we did get a lot of comments around pyjamas, which always <laughs> inevitably comes up with homeworking. And I think generally the consensus was don't wear pyjamas. Even if you have lovely day pyjamas, it's good to dress. I mean, again, this comes down to how people draw boundaries. And I think the workspace is, is in itself a boundary, but the way you dress, there's a distinction between maybe the, the way you dress during a week and a weekend even. There were some people saying that they like to make a distinction between their work clothes. Now, this isn't necessarily dressing in a suit. There was one person that did that, by the way. It's just making a distinction was I'm at work, I'm not at work. There was one fantastic lady who said that she put her pass card on, her security card, when she was at work and took it off when she wasn't. And again, it's just uh, that sort of signifying I'm in a workplace, I'm not in a workplace, despite the fact I know they're both the same place at the moment. So I think there was a lot coming out. And, and to be honest, on the workspace piece, it came up again and again. And this was the first thing I did. Everyone said, get a good chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one guy that said, you know, he'd been working from home for over 25 years and he'd done a lot of the technology that enabled you to do it. And he said, you know, that's my one piece of advice. Uh, and that's what I did. And I have to say, I discovered how uncomfortable my home furniture was. And I now have the most comfortable seat in the world to work from. And I just sit in it all the time. So there was a benefit there. But I think, you know, just create a space, even if it's a small space, you know, create a space where you're working. I think that that was the first thing that really came out. And what's really interesting for us about that is we were talking to a consultant in sleep medicine a few weeks back who made the really important point that daylight, even through a window, and you talked about it energizing you, is so helpful to your body clock, to that circadian rhythm that also supports your health. So that's a really helpful tip. Good chair, daylight, and a bit of sensible dressing as well. So great. 
So you've got your workspace, you've got your chair. What would you focus on next? Well, we're creatures of habit. So I think this is one thing that we've always seen with work and it is around establishing routines and setting goals and also knowing when to switch off. One of the best quotes, I think, for me in in the whole research was a guy that compared homeworking to drinking at a wedding. You know, you start way too early and you don't know when to stop. And before you know it, you're going to bed having mistakenly peed in the wardrobe. And he said maybe the analogy started to break down after that. But um, (laughs) I think we've found traditionally when we've been looking at homeworking in BT, firstly, there's always a dip in product activity when you first start to do it because that's your bedding down period and I think most of us are probably in that now we've bedded Um, so we have a routine but everyone is different on their routines I think focusing in on what's important to you and your role is really important as well around that sort of goal setting thing why are you getting up in the morning Uh, what's important to you and again this isn't homeworking as normal one of the things that came out certainly um, from some of the the people was saying that their productivity wasn't as good because they'd have other distractions and obviously we're in a weird situation at the moment as well there are external stresses going on so I think it is really around trying to sort of pin down what's important to you and the role and agree with your boss you know what you're going to produce and when and plan your time but also you know really really do switch off at the end of the day I think it's tempting when work and the rest of your life start to blur it's very difficult to turn off and we've done quite a bit of work actually in the past with Cambridge University on something that we're about to republish called the balanced communication diet for business which is all about where do you re-establish the boundaries between working and not working and even simple things like packing your technology away at the end of the day so that you're not tempted to go and check your email. All of that kind of thing I think is really important. But we're not in homeworking as usual. And I think that's one thing we can't assume that we're going to be as productive. And I think there's always that temptation to work longer and longer hours. And we know from many, many, many bits of productivity research that working longer hours does not make you more productive. It makes you less productive because again, back to sleep you get tired. So again, you know, routines, boundaries, goals, very important to set. Sounds fantastically helpful, but I really like the point about staying connected with your values. Again, we've been talking with psychologists, particularly Janet Wingrove, about how important it is for your mental health to keep that connection with what it is you get up for and go to work for, even if it is a few yards away from where you've been before. So really helpful advice again. So chair, daylight, sleep, routine. What would you focus on next, Nicola? What's the next sort of insight? One thing that came out very strongly is you do also need to keep healthy. We've always had this pressure with home workers because they can't be seen in an office. And obviously none of us can be seen in an office at the moment. Um, There is this pressure to demonstrate that I'm working and I'm always available and I'm always on and I'm always tied to my desk and I'm very responsive. And actually that's not very healthy either. And again, Taking breaks came out really, really strongly. So don't be open all hours. We have lovely things like presence information that people are paying attention to now. So deliberately put stuff in your diary. For instance, just put lunches in because I think it's very tempting to just do death by meeting days and then forget to eat or have a cup of coffee. Stretch as well. Sitting is the new smoking, allegedly. So, you know, just get up, stretch, have a walk. Uh, Again, one person was saying that they do a bit of a little commute around their garden to, you know, just have breaks. So keep on moving, I think, was a a really big message. And beware of the fridge came out quite strongly and the coffee pot in my case, sadly. I think in the first week after cup nine uh, went down, I was a little bit (laughs) aware that that probably was a little bit too much coffee. So I really have tried to cut down. But again, 
again, just the mental health. We were talking yesterday actually about things like mindfulness. Just take a few minutes to go outside if you can. Uh, if you have a garden, brilliant, but just go outside, have a walk, get a breath of fresh air, walk the dog. None of that's a problem. You would probably go for a break if you were in the office. That's not a problem at home either. And also you don't have a commute. So you can use a little bit of that spare time or free time. It's not because you can very easily fill it, but refill it with something that maybe gives you a little bit of a break and allows you to relax rather than fill it with meetings and to-do lists. I was also struck, and I thought it was an incredibly helpful tip and kind of obvious, that scheduling meetings that start at five past the hour and then finish at five two if it's an hour-long meeting. So you do have time for those little pauses as well that also are really helpful for keeping your mental well-being in a good place. So lots of really helpful tips, I think, on keeping healthy and then really fighting those feelings of guilt that would otherwise drive us all into a state of exhaustion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Outlook does tend to time box us. Most of our meetings do tend to be 30 minutes, 60 minutes. So it was quite interesting to just say, you know, don't do that. If you're going to schedule a 30-minute meeting, finish it at 25 and have a stretch. I hadn't thought of that. I'm always alert to feeling that the machines are controlling us, but I hadn't realised how powerful Outlook had been in terms of controlling my behaviour. <laughs> Indeed, the machines are coming to control us. Oh, they already do. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it should be at least a robot army, not a calendar. <laughs> anyway, really helpful insights there. So you've kind of touched on as well some of the social aspects of work. Is that something else that we perhaps need to attend to to make working from home a good experience? Oh, definitely. And I think that was one thing that came out really strongly around connect, connect, connect. You know, I've had a really, really positive experience from working from home. And I must confess, I am starting to enjoy it because I'm talking to more people than I normally talk to in locations around the world. So there would be no chance that half of the people I'm now having virtual coffees with, I would run into as a routine in the office. And I am having a lot of these water cooler chats, virtual coffees. In fact, I have one later on this morning with a colleague who doesn't work for BT, but he's a really fascinating guy. So we've just been connecting and having a chat on a weekly basis. And I think that's healthy. And I think just sort of checking in with your colleagues, your friends, even your boss. We kind of forget that bosses are human too, don't we? So, you know, <laughs> just check in with your boss and say, how are you? How are you doing? That's also a healthy thing to do. So, it's an effort to do it. And to be honest, office behaviours frequently get a bit lazy and particularly leadership behaviours in offices become lazy because I think it's very easy to just see people and go, oh, they're there, they're working, they must be all right, rather than necessarily making an effort to connect. And I think remote working especially, you do need to make an effort to do it. But to your point about mental health, it's absolutely vital too because otherwise you just end up talking to your own shadow all day or indeed your family all day and don't you never see anybody else so I think it is an opportunity to connect we're also getting a lot of virtual pubs springing up we have a pub quiz in our team now I've got to know my team a lot more than I used to because I think firstly because of the blurring of the boundaries we all laughed at the poor guy on the BBC that had his kids and wife run in mid-broadcast now that's all of us now frankly isn't it so yeah uh, so I've actually met most of my colleagues kids because they've encroached in the background we're having this virtual pub quiz so it's kind of having fun we shouldn't forget to do that occasionally and often the fun starts with the pub name so as is the locked in the funniest one i've encountered uh, i think uh, was the coughing pangolin which is <laughs> genius so you know just come together and, and be creative and i think 
we've created certainly in our team and a lot of this is down to leadership as well we're a remote team anyway but i think we've connected way more than we would we wouldn't have seen each other's kids i suspect (laughs) if we were actually meeting up in an office environment so it's been actually really rather delightful that does sound great and and it reminds me of the value of the team spirit really those sort of social forces between us that kind of help us all share that common purpose and actually you know support each other when we're having those dips and difficult times as, as well as celebrating in the way that you describe with your pub quizzes i guess we shouldn't be playing the weakest link though that might turn a bit toxic <laughs> absolutely so lots of good stuff going on alongside those early challenges any other tips that kind of help you get the most out of those experiences I think the last one was really around using the technology effectively. And I I keep saying there's no lack of technology that allows us to connect. I think the the problem is there's too much. We used to call it techno stress and fear of missing out and all of this lovely stuff that it's very tempting to just keep looking and keep connecting. And again, we need some downtime so that there, there are always positives and negatives with the technology. But I think video conferencing has come of age. Now, ironically, I was in BT's video team many, many years ago, and it was always the next big thing. And it hadn't really taken off until now, of course, when you've become a verb, you know that you've arrived. And I think Zoom especially has benefited enormously in the past month or so around everyone connecting over video. But I would also say that not everyone likes connecting over video. Uh, we, we certainly have been looking at introverts typically I am an introvert. So my instinct is not to necessarily like having a camera stuck up my nose. So that's one thing. Obviously, you do need bandwidth for it. A lot of this is taking back to the, the, the fact that you do need some of the basics. And what we have found is that if you don't have the bandwidth to video conference, you usually do have an audio channel. And that's actually reinforced the fact that it really is good to talk. So, you know, that, that kind of thing, we can always transition down to a slightly less rich mechanism to talk, but we're still talking. And then obviously reinforcing that with uh, social media groups as well, whether it's external ones like LinkedIn or internal ones like Yammer or Teams or Workplace or a lot of those tools I think are now being used and WhatsApp, of course, just to have those very informal water cooler moments that we no longer have. That's a a very helpful point. And it reminds me that in our work with Partnership for Young London, it's incredibly rich, nuanced our experience of the tech. So young people feel that the Zoom and social media contacts are having are bringing them closer together. And yet quite poignantly, they're also feeling a greater sense of absence when they stop. And it led me to think that in using the tech, we need to develop digital skills, I guess they're often called, to help us also deal with some of the perhaps unexpected consequences. So you can come together, but we also need to understand how to end calls and uh, perhaps moving sometimes to voice calls, as you, you say, Nicola, might be a really helpful way of having a different sort of contact that's perhaps easier to manage. Definitely. And I think a lot of this points towards the changing nature of leadership. And and I, I mentioned earlier that sometimes in offices, leadership can get very lazy. Leaders need to actually, again, make an effort to create that connection between their teams and get to know their teams and talk to their teams and check that they're okay. And it's good leadership, but we tend to get quite lazy when we, we aren't remote. Now, BT's a weird one because I haven't been co-located with my boss for probably about 15 years. Actually, ironically, technically I am with my current boss, but we actually don't see each other very often. So we've always had this remote relationship. And I think the one thing that we've learned is, you know, leaders really do need to make an effort not to sort of um, command and control, but really around connection, creation of purpose. And indeed, you know, 
certainly when we're brought together in meetings, I think video meetings have a slightly different dynamic, but they still need an agenda and they still need chairing. And I think what it does expose is often that leaders are not very good at particularly chairing meetings. I've always described it as the sort of perfect party host. You need to be able to be aware who's on the meeting, who can contribute. They need to understand how they contribute. And you need to actually just broker those conversations and make sure that the people that should be contributing are contributing are encouraged to do so. And again, that's not necessarily a skill that many leaders have or indeed a skill we teach leaders. So it's always an interesting one when you work into a remote work situation situation that it exposes some of those things that leaders aren't necessarily as good at as they should be. And I guess going back to your earlier metaphor as well, the the perfect party host might also keep an eye on who might be doing something rather dubious in the wardrobe. (laughs) (laughs) So lots and lots of helpful insights and and advice there, Nicola, on the challenges of, of working from home. But I guess one of the areas that it strikes me where I know you've also done a lot of thinking about the value, is how this is going to impact on collaboration. You've been talking about leadership and so on, but there are also issues between all of us, I guess, in terms of how we can maintain the really positive aspects of collaborative work whilst somehow having to do that being apart physically. Yeah, and again, I I get asked a lot about culture and how do you develop culture in a remote organisation. And again, a lot of it's down to purpose. So I think coming out of a lot of the work, you do need to actually get people to understand what they're doing, when they need to do it, who they need to talk to and empower them. And I think part of that culture is around trusting by default. So I think, again, a lot of the cultures that sometimes are the unhealthy ones in the office is I don't trust you to work anywhere else because I don't know what you do is often. (laughs) So a lot of this is down to very much defining, you know, what do I do? What is my contribution? What is my purpose? What is my role? What do I need to deliver? When do I need to deliver it? What resources do I need? All of those things are need to be enabled by the culture and enabled by the leaders. But leaders in a remote organization need to trust by default. They have recruited people for a reason. Hopefully they do trust them to work. And I think it's more about, you know, trust them unless they prove that they're not trustworthy rather than the other way around. So I think that's the first point around that that sort of culture in remote organisations. And then collaboration does not happen by magic. It does happen by purpose. And again, it, it is around trying to sort of define that in a fair amount of detail and create that connection and also create what we call a good common ground for collaboration. And my definition for common ground is it's got to be accessible to everybody. And it's got to be appropriate for the task. And then we have this plethora of technology that potentially we can choose to do that. But the technology can fragment us. That can be a very big problem. So again, leaders need to think, what's the right platform to do this on? And how do I bring people together on that platform and facilitate it and create purpose? So a lot of it comes down to leadership. It is enabled by technologies, but it's not technology that's necessarily the problem here. Do you think there's a challenge for some leaders as well in terms of understanding how much collaboration can contribute to productivity and innovation? I'm part of BT's innovation team. So we have the delight of partnering with a whole load of universities, including MIT, and they've been doing quite a lot around how collaboration works, lifting the bonnet, if you like, and looking under it and saying, well, how does collaboration work? Um, And there's been some fantastic work um, done by Sandy Pentland that he calls social physics. And it's a big data approach to looking at how people collaborate. But he actually looked at environments 
I mean, to be honest, as academics, we tend to cheat. We look at environments that are easy to measure because one of the problems with things like productivity is in a knowledge environment, what is it? How do you measure it? So it's far easier to look at you know, environments that are easy to measure. And one of the obvious ones is contact center. And to be honest, most of my academic research has been on contact centers because they are easy to measure. You can tell if they're breathing pretty much. So <laughs> he looked at contact centers, but he did something in some of the early experiments that was inconceivable in a contact center, which is he took a whole team out for a coffee break in the morning and in the afternoon. Now, if you run a contact center, typically you only take one or two people off at a time because you've got calls coming in. So obviously they managed to get other teams to support the calls. But he then looked at the impact of productivity of those two, you know, 20 minute breaks, one during the morning, one during the afternoon. And he found out that productivity went up. So the underlying message there is that productivity and collaboration are often seem to be opposite ends of the spectrum, because particularly when you're having a conversation over a coffee, does that actually contribute to productivity? Well, actually it does, because that's what that study demonstrated. But they might not be talking about anything to do with work. So obviously it links into, you know, this cohesion amongst teams, getting to know your team, the well-being aspects as well. I do remember, I think a supermarket once banned its shelf stackers from talking to each other on the night shift and because they thought it would make them more productive. And what actually happened was they all quit because it was the conversation that was keeping them going. So I think there's always this tension around, you know, it really is good to talk and collaborate. Sometimes we do overdo it. Death by meeting days being one of the examples. <laughs> But we can over collaborate. So we need to use our judgment as to when it's important, when it's not. And we shouldn't also underestimate that the informal collaboration and how that builds cohesion. But I think we're still trying to understand how all of those dimensions work in a remote environment. And this is providing a fantastic global petri dish, I guess, to study how people are starting to cope in an entirely remote environment. But I would also comment that entirely remote meetings seem to work a lot better than if you have a mixture of physical and virtual, because that can be a bit of a nightmare. So that could be something that we're taking into the future around. Actually, if you are going to have a meeting where potentially there are people that are in an office, but also people that are remote, just do it remotely. (laughs) That's my delivery. (laughs) Well, we can pause there, Nicola. Go, go and get it. That's just a brilliant example of the challenges of working from home. Sorry about that. That always happens. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's coming across, Nicola, from all you're saying is that if leaders, if managers are tempted to treat their workers, their employees in a more machine-like way, it's counterproductive. Productivity goes down. Whereas if they can recognize what helps us in terms of well-being and, and, and even in terms of our physical body, our health, you actually are more likely to improve productivity. In the research that we've been doing on the future of work, well-being has come out very strongly and, and they're all interconnected. You're very unlikely to have a productive workforce if they're not well and engaged. So those two are intimately linked. Now, how you define productivity is is a bit of a problem as that's another big research theme around how on earth do you define it, particularly in an era where most of us don't work in a factory. We don't produce widgets. Many of us who are lucky enough to be working from home are knowledge workers and, and they're particularly problematic in terms of measurement. And then collaboration also has a very, very big impact on well-being and also a very big impact on productivity. So they're all intimately linked 
linked. My PhD was on motivation and I went around asking a lot of people why they got out of bed in the morning and what made them want to go to work. And it was often the people they work with. Very, very simple. And obviously, who I work for has a big bearing as well. So that sort of collaboration dynamic links into the well-being question, but also links into the productivity piece as well. So it's been those three things that we've been really trying to explore at the moment as to, you know, how do you get a workforce working well? How do you get them to work productively? And how do we define what that is in the first place? And then how do we enable collaboration, given that, as I said, it doesn't happen by magic, it happens by purpose. Well, that's a really helpful place for us to get to at this point in terms of the future of work actually being rooted in those principles that you've outlined and and keeping well-being to the fore. I'd like at this point to sort of shift a little to think more about your situation with homeworking and introduce a a part of the podcast that uh, I've certainly come to enjoy, which is to ask you some questions that might help us sort of get to know you a little better and also (laughs) offer you an opportunity to perhaps share some of the things that make life, you know, valuable for you. And that's to actually give you a thought experiment, I guess. I'm going to try and roll back the clock, say three months, and ask you that if you were about to enter isolation or lockdown and could actually take with you three famous or prominent people, who would you choose? Ah, oh, well, that, that is an interesting question. It's the dinner party question reworked, really, isn't it? So I've thought long and hard about who I would choose. And, and to be honest, my first choice is Jane Austen. I have been a Jane Austen obsessive for a very long time. And I'm from Bath originally. So um, there is a very big link between Jane Austen and Bath. And indeed, Bath normally has a absolutely fantastic Jane Austen festival every year, which includes a costumed parade, believe it or not, uh, through the town. And yeah, I mean, sadly, probably not going to happen this year. But I'm Jane Austen, she is such a, a fantastic observer of people. And I think that's why I love her books. You know, just those little observations, those little quirky characters. I think she would be a fantastic person to be quarantined with, really. Just aside from the fact, obviously, her stories are very compelling as well. But Jane Austen would be my first choice. My second choice is one of my first ever crushes. So I fell in love with Harrison Ford around the time of Star Wars. You know, Han Solo is an incredible character. And if you look at my top 10 films ever they all feature Harrison Ford so my number one film is Blade Runner which is a remarkable film Uh, my second one is Star Wars itself and my third one is Raiders of the Lost Ark and I just think having seen interviews with him he's also got a really dry acerbic sense of humor but I would just love to get a bit of gossip from all of the sets from Indiana Jones right the way through to Star Wars and just find out you know what it was like to make those fantastic movies. And my third one's a slightly quirky one. Now, I probably would never have chosen this person prior to this year, but I'm going to choose Dolly Parton. I must confess, I used to be slightly allergic to country music and had a little bit of a turnaround, um, actually largely revolving around a fantastic film called Wild Rose, which was uh, about country music. And I kind of actually found the good stuff after that. And Dolly Parton's the good stuff. And having also watched a documentary on Dolly on Christmas Day, she just is a fabulous human being. Aside from the fact she wrote, I will always love you and Jolene on the same day. 
and has been one of the most prolific songwriters on earth. And it also has a tremendous sense of humor, is currently, you know, reigning on social media, is doing children's stories. Yeah, she's just an incredible person. And I think it would be fascinating to sit down and just talk to her and sing with her as well. I'm a singer, so I would love to sing with Dolly Parton too. So yeah, Dolly, Dolly would be my third choice. Okay. I just want to point out one potential risk of those choices, which is that's Harrison Ford with three women. (laughs) And I wonder whether jealousy might be one of the challenges. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You're allowed to take in a book, piece of music, film, recording of an event even, like a sporting event or theatre production. What would you take with you, do you think, as some content, some media, perhaps on your phone even? Yeah, well, I'm I'm going for a box set. I'm probably slightly cheating, but <laughs> I need hours worth of entertainment. So I'm going for uh, the box set of Battlestar Galactica, the, the reboot, not the original series. I'm a huge science fiction fan. And to be honest, um, that series was so groundbreaking and so jaw dropping and for my job, very relevant as well, because, of course, it's it's all to do with the, the relationship between humans and machines. And I think it just did it so incredibly well and so compellingly. And actually, I'm rewatching it at the moment. There's actually a podcast, a rival podcast, which is, is rewatching Battlestar Galactica. And uh, it's so relevant to, to now as well, it, although it was made. I know, 15 years ago, it's just as relevant as it was then. So, yeah, I'm having the box set of Battlestar Galactica. That sounds really interesting in terms of something that helps you think about your own humanity, your own identity, when everything around you might seem strange and alien. Mm, Definitely. Even though we're at home. So, great choice. And a luxury. Perhaps it's just been delivered Yes, I have just received my luxury delivery and I will confess to be a chocoholic. So I have just had a lovely box of Hotel Chocolat chocolates arrive on my doorstep. Um, So, yeah, that's definitely my luxury and I will be enjoying that later on today. And any chance of sharing that with Jane, Harrison and Dolly? Um, There might be a bit of a fight at that point, I think, but uh, I might let them have one. Okay. Well, remember one aspect of well-being is being able to give. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) in lockdown with those three, it might might help in ways that, like collaboration, might not always be obvious, but might be very productive nonetheless. Absolutely. Well, that's a fantastic place for us to end, Nicola. Thank you so much. I think we'll all be very interested in following your thinking and and further work on this evolution of work and teams and collaboration. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure. No problem at all. Lovely to talk to you, Richard. Our music is kindly provided by Key Changes a charity offering award-winning music engagement and recovery services for people experiencing mental health issues. Thank you to all at Key Changes.